Next week, I'd like to start our classes um, by asking for prayer requests. So, and I hope I hope all of you um, will get past any discomfort to ask. It's it's been an important part of um, what we've done as a group. I'd be sorry to lose it, even though the group's a little bit larger. So, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass this morning, your words. Your words to us were to take care to hear. We don't hear very well. Um, you made that clear this morning. Um, we don't read very well. We don't. The older we get, the more we think because of our experiences we see so much. <laughs> There's a blindness we carry with us through our lives. Um, and a quality of deafness. Those that have ears hear, those that have eyes. Strengthen us, please, to um, clear our minds, to see better, to hear better, genuinely to hear. To hear something well means to do it. That's what obedience means. It means to hear, to do. Um, help us to take seriously what you're asking of us, particularly in what we do with each other. And um, in, in whatever good these works offer us, Help us to find a strength. Um, Milton was a courageous man. Um, he loved you more than anything and wanted to take you to the world. Um, help us to find the courage in what we're doing together um, to take you to the world, particularly where you're not wanted. Um, we are glad for this night together. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, can you all pull out um, George Herbert for our poems tonight? Doc. I'm sorry, Doc. Do you have the Doc? Do you have the Herbert poems? I, I'm I'm not sure that we have the. Can you all look the section? The one that I've got starts with the altar. Is that is that what you guys have for Herbert? What do you have for Herbert? George Herbert? I hope you have it. The altar? Yeah. Okay, good. And love beneath it? Yeah. Okay. So it's not the first page? Yeah. Okay. Just look for George Herbert. I have to, otherwise I'll lose it. Oh, good. Do you all have it? Oh, okay. George Herbert? By the way, you all have that um, exposition that I gave on supernatural love? This is, this is the two or three page exposition reading of supernatural love. Um, here, I'm going to pass this around. If you, if you want it, it's, just, it's a reading of supernatural love. I think there's a lot more going on in the poem than most of us realize when we read it. So this was something from a work that I'm doing that just sets it all out. If you want it, take it. And if you're not interested, just pass it around, okay? But there's that. Okay. George Herbert was an Anglican priest. He was um, he just lived after Shakespeare a little bit and was a contemporary of John Donne's. Um, he was one of a group of poets who were known by the title metaphysical poets. Um, Herbert, Crashaw, Donne, some others. 
Um, it was a group of poets who were distinct in, in the entire tradition of the lyric poem because they had a metaphysical grasp of things. This is really important, it's really interesting. These men were Catholic in the sense that they looked back to a Catholic Middle Ages. One of the things that marks the modern world is a loss of metaphysics. With the advent of science, we lose a metaphysical grasp of things. We don't bring that to understanding. That's gonna play a huge part in everything we do together as we go forward. It's the absence of that view um, that affects our grasp of um, the supernatural, the spiritual. Take metaphysics away and we lose the support for understanding things that are beyond the senses. Because you know the empirical science rests largely on what's observable, what's measurable. This group of poets got the tag metaphysical poets because their sense of metaphysics informed everything that they did. So they're looking back to a Catholic Middle Ages right here on the point of the Reformation. There was another group of poets who were called the Cavalier Poets. Those are the ones who defended, who supported Charles in the war that we've been talking about. And they, they made up the, the greater body of lyric poets at this time, okay? Herbert is an Anglican priest and devoted to Christ um, and wrote this large body of poetry that can be broken down into the, the porch I remember the church militant, and what's the what's the, the church militant and the the saved, the, the the ones who have gone on to the saints, basically. That's not the name, but but it was really clear that there was this um, action that had to be taken on the part of every Christian that that a Christian had to be drawn into his world, that he became a part of a war, the church militant. There was this fight on earth, good and evil, and then. Um, and then went beyond. Um, so his poetry, I think, if I remember correctly, breaks down into those three parts. <clears throat> you can see the, the, the first one here on the page, or maybe it's not on the first page, but in the altar. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, this is the opening poem to his collection because in his mind, his poetry was an offering to Christ. It was his way of sharing in the sacrifice on the altar. So he presents this poem. I don't want to read this one. I'm not going to let you read it. But um, one of the interesting things that, that Herbert did was work with the form of poetry. So very often, the, he's very innovative. Um, his, form, his poems take different forms. I'm going to read a couple today, and you'll get some sense of it. Um, and, and most importantly, he had this sense, you'll see it in a minute, he had this sense that words according to the modern, a modern would say a word is a sign of something, just a sign. It's arbitrary, it's conventional, it's made up. Herbert would say, that's not so, that words in some strange way participate, echo, reflect back on the word. So every word in itself um, carries within it some intelligibility, some meaning in itself that harkens back to God, the word, Christ. You'll see that in a second. So he has this wonderful, playful sense of language. He puns a lot. Um, he looks into the secret meanings of words. You'll see them in a, in a couple of ways in just a moment in the, in the selections that I'll read tonight. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's about it. 
So pay attention to the words when we read. We'll read just, I'm going to read a couple of poems just so you can get a feel for them. And then I, ho I hope you will read some others on your own. <clears throat> if you can turn to Love 3. I'm not sure which page it's on. One, okay. George Herbert, Love 3. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. The quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, Ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. By the way, I, I hope you notice there that all comes down to the Eucharist. It's a shared meal with Christ. Um, death. Can you all turn to death? I, I am read Herbert in ages, um, but I, I, I really fell in love with Herbert the, when I first read him. It's been ages since I've gone over these poems, but in one sense, I wish more Christians would read this poem and take it seriously. We get really morbid when death takes place in our lives. I mean, our shoulders droop, our heads droop, we wear sad faces. Herbert's saying, be glad. <laughs> um, something happened with Christ that's supposed to change our whole attitude towards death, and that's what he's speaking about in this, in this poem. Death. Death, thou wert once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust which sheds no tears, but may extort. But since our Savior's death and put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do, for we do now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore, we can go die asleep and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. Something in us, I do this with our family when some loved one in our family has somebody die. It's a sad time. It's a sad time for all of us. It's been a practice of mine whenever, I can't remember who recently lost somebody. To, huh? Berto, yeah, Berto, and somebody else too immediately here, to always say, be glad, be glad they've left this world, be glad. Holding together joy and sadness is, I don't think it's an easy thing for us, but I think that's one of the paradoxes of our faith. 
How could, how could any of us die and not want to rush to Christ? Hard to imagine. Um, okay, I'm just going to read the last two quickly. Um, just to point out, to illustrate what I was talking about a minute ago. Take a look at Heisu. Jesu, Heisu. Do you all have it? Watch what he does with the letters of this word. Now remember, these are the elements that make up this word. So it's not just a word, it's not just a sign. He's saying that the word has a meaning in itself. There's something buried there. Why? Because all words have their roots in the word. So every word for Herbert contains some buried element, some secret intelligibility, some meaning. Okay? Hey, Sue. Hey, Sue is in my heart. His sacred name is deeply carved there. But the other week, a great affliction broke the little frame. All of us have these moments of affliction, sorrow. Something will happen that distresses us and leaves us broken for a moment. But the other week, a great affliction broke the little frame, even all to pieces, which I went to seek. At first, I found the corner where was yea or I, after where ease, and next where you was graved. When I had got these parcels, instantly I sat me down to spell them and perceived that to my broken heart he was. I ease you into my hold, Nihesu. You all see the player there, right? The play on the words. Yes or no? No. Um, take a look. Do you see the Mary anagram? Do you all have that? Yes. Take a look at the word Mary. What are the elements buried in Mary? Yeah? Anna Graham. What does Graham mean? Oops. What does Graham mean? I think it means word. I'm a scientist, it's a major word. <laughs> <laughs> there's the word. I'm not kidding. There's there's an analogy of the word. Good for you. Telegram. <laughs> um, Anna was Mary's mother, yeah? And what she produced was, in her conception, the word, or Mary, or through Mary, an army. So he's, he's seeing that in this word, Mary, is contained, again, these other elements. Mary, Anna, army, Graham. How well her name an army doth present, in whom the Lord of hosts did pitch his tent. Um, one, of, one of my... What? Doc, would you watch him, please? Um, I wasn't going to read this, but I love this poem. Um, I really wanted to make sure... We may not get to Milton again tonight, just so you all know. We, we will, I promise. I promise. I'm going to read this because I love this poem. It's one, of, it's one of my favorite poems. What are the two meanings of collar? Is everybody clear? Remember buckle? We talked about Hopkins' use of buckle. What are the two meanings of collar? Collar, yeah. Yeah, it's a piece of clothing. It's a collar, but it's also somebody who's calling, making a call. Or, as Mark said, 
somebody who's reaching out and to call her. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. It's also a stock option. <laughs> don't blame. Oh, don't blame me on this. We had a for the last few years. We had a designated table of troublemakers, and Karen was at the top of that table. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this because it's it's to me it's a stunning book. Notice notice this is Herbert speaking as a priest now, an Anglican priest. Um, complaining, whining because of the task that he has. Notice all the imagery um, relating to bread and wine and ropes holding, um, but most of all the bread and wine, okay, and, and why that's important in, in what he presents. But keep in mind that these, the, particularly the double meaning of caller. Somebody who calls, but it's also a caller. It's a rope, it's a containment, like a dog. Um, that you put on a dog to keep on a leash. Okay. Caller, <clears throat> I struck the board and cried, no more, I will abroad. What shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted. All these things to show me how good I am, basically. Um, all wasted, not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy side-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit in not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw, and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. That is, run away. Away from it. Away. Take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there. Tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling, Child. And I replied, My Lord. The caller. Okay. Um, um, very, very quick. If I can, if I can do this, I want to do this very, very quickly. Um, we've been our our focus for the last couple of weeks has been on the changes that took place during the Reformation, and I to try to put it in some perspective. I asked the question: Who cares? Who cares? What does it matter? People have different beliefs, um, and I, I, in a way that doesn't do justice to them, but to. To, to make some simple generalizations so that we could get some grasp of these things. I asked what difference it would, make, would it make if somebody were Islamic or Jew, um, Jewish or um, Christian. Um, briefly, remember that for any, any, um, any Islamic believer, um, the, the, the foundation of that person's life is the law. 
Um, that law goes back to the Judaic law, but it changes with um, Mohammed and his vision. And by the way, n remember, it's a this is so interesting to me. It's a private revelation. He has vis vision in a cave. That's a private revelation. And we're talking about the importance of private revela revelations in um, the Reformation. Um, this is not going to do justice to the... Is, um, I've, I've gone through parts of the uh, Quran. And um, it's, it's an amazing work. It, um, it, it, um, it makes quite clear that it does not believe that Allah has company. It, it denies the Trinity, that Allah is alone. So the ultimate source of humans for the um, Islamic is Allah, a single God, alone. Set that against Christianity where the ultimate source of the image in which we're created is triunal. We're, it's three gods loving each other, so our, our nature by nature is social. Um, they don't believe in the Trinity and they don't believe that Christ is a prophet. They believe, they deny his divine nature, they believe he's a prophet. Um, and there isn't within Islam, I know this is a simplification, but it, because it's a theocracy, it, it, it generally, it, anybody believing in Islam can live in any country, but the whole push of Islam is towards its own nation, its own state. And it, it does not have um, the kind of graduated awareness that the West has between the, God, the laws of God and the laws of the temporal order. So if somebody, if somebody commits adultery, that person, I think, over the, over, the, over the course of the Islamic history, is subject to stoning or death. If somebody, if somebody steals, you could cut off his hand. Because to violate any of those laws is ultimately, ultimately to violate the laws of Allah. Judaism is under the law as well. Um, both Islam and Judaism have um, a strong sense of mercy that's in the Torah, that's in the Quran. But neither one of them believes in a God who so loved humans in their fall that he was willing to come down and sacrifice himself. And we've talked about this. What Christ did in coming down is satisfy the law. He had to answer a sin that man couldn't answer, but he brought with the satisfaction of that sin and infinite mercy. Infinite, because he brings it from Godhead. So it's essential to see the metaphysics of this. A God whose nature is infinite, endless, boundless, without bounds, came down, took on a finite nature to atone for our sins and brought with him everything of divinity, including a mercy. Um, we looked at the um, different major Reformation thinkers, Wycliffe, um, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, and talked about the important differences of their positions with respect to scripture, faith, the Eucharist, the authority, things like that. I want to just briefly make some passing comments and go on. Um, all of them believed that Scripture was the es essential, infallible authority on which their faith rested. That's absolutely essential. Um, but the interesting thing is, while they believed in that, every one of them read Scripture differently. If Scripture is a source of truth, um, they didn't come together on their understanding of that truth. They differed in fundamental ways, which raises this question, is truth relative? Can you make scripture whatever you want? If, if Christ is the truth, 
And presumably, he has an objective reality that we can't change just because we happen to see him that way. So the, the making of scripture, the, the basis on which the authority of the church rested is problematic to say the least. Okay, I hope that's clear. They all had different views. They read scripture differently. They all understood this, the Eucharist differently, just as an example. Um, but they all understood different passages of the scripture differently. So it, it, and that's a problem that we've carried forward into our modern world. Can we make scripture mean whatever we want by our own private reading of it? Sola fide, faith alone. This probably is the most problematic element of the whole Reformation movement for everything that happens then and afterwards. Faith by itself is not verifiable. I hope that's clear. It's subjective. And, and by saying that, I'm not trying to diminish its importance at all. Faith is a supernatural gift. It's from God. It elevates the individual in whom that faith is real to a supernatural position. He's one with God. He enters into something personal with him. So, and I, I want to come back to this because it's, it's far more important than I think most of it. We take it for granted, I think, in too many ways. It's not verifiable. Um, if you happen to believe that the world is depraved and faith is the basis of your actions, then to what do you turn for guidance? I, made that, I tried to make that clear when I talked about Hamlet. Remember, he has that private revelation and he has to, he ha he has, he's given a, a task by his father. He has to act it. He can't, he can't take that to anybody. He's got to act on it. That revelation privatizes him. It isolates him from his community. He has another revelation at the end of the play that comes to him from God. That's an absolutely different revelation. The effect of that relation or that revelation is to make him trust for the first time in the play. The revelation of the beginning isolates him. He can trust nobody. If the, if the king's a murderer and his father was murdered, who can he trust? He doesn't know. What Shakespeare, Shakespeare's a genius. I, the older I get, the more I'm stunned by him. He saw the implications of these things far more than most of us do. And in that particular play, he's looking very closely at two different kinds of private revelations, one involving his father, the ghost, and the other that comes to him while he's done this channel crossing where he has these promptings. And, and what happens is he, he discovers there's a providence looking out for him. And that's when he says, the readiness is all, I'm, I'm going to go forward. He trusts. There's this God, and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. He gives himself up. It's an amazing moment. Um, so faith by itself is the basis of our relationship with God. The Bible makes that clear. But what it means in the way that it's used obviously can vary. Okay? Um, we saw this in the Reformation Church because for the, for the Calvinist churches, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, you know, the Puritans who were in some ways, um, they had something Anglican also Calvinistic in them. Remember that the authority of the church rested in the congregation. It was their shared act of faith. But who knows what went on in the hearts of all of those people in that congregation. It could have varied tremendously in all of them, but it was on the basis of that shared faith um, that that congregation had its authority. Okay? The, the Catholic Church holds that that authority is there objectively in Christ. It's there. He's, he's the founder, the magisterium, 
is the seat, the, the repository of that authority, that faith going forward. Um, the Eucharist we talked about a little bit. It, it, um, remember that what happens in the Reformation is that basically the Eucharist is explained away and, and the Mass is taken away with it. So that in place of the Mass, you've got the ministry of the Word, preachers interpreting the Bible. The, the one exception to that is Luther, because he believed in consubstantiation. So they continued to practice the, the, um, the Mass. And the, the higher English churches, the Anglican Episcopal churches, mm -hmm. continue to, to, give us, to hold on to the Mass um, um, because of its importance. What we saw also in the political movements of that time was an irony because what we saw was that political power was being used to impose God's will on other people. And that was the one thing that Milton most objected to, right? The Anglicans wanted to change the Scots. The Scots wanted to change the Anglicans. They all believed that their religion was the same and they were all using state powers to impose their will on others. So part of the greatness in Milton rests on his objection to that, to heroically standing against it. You know the outcome of that finally was that he became a, a religion unto himself. He was, his grandfather was Catholic, his father Anglican, he was Anglican, he supported the Presbyterian movement, and after he saw what happened to the Presbyterians under Cromwell before, he said the Presbyterians are nothing but Catholics writ large. They're, they're imposing their will the way the Catholics did. So he withdrew his support from them um, and it's at that point that he really dissociates himself from politics and begins to write his epic, um, which we're going to turn to in a second. One last thing before we leave these dogmatic issues. Um, two things, actually. Um, oh, gosh. One is, it's important, it's important to remember... Um, oh, gosh, did I... I, I won't have it by quote because I, I didn't bring the notes, but um, two things to remember. One is um, what happens with Christ um, represents a kind of revolution that the world has never known before. I mean, I, that, I can't even, that can't even do justice to what's going on at this point. When Christ entered the world, he, he brought a divine nature into our human nature to atone for a sin and called everybody back to him to ultimately join him in a, in a heavenly banquet. You know that one of the great controversies um, that, that took place in the, um, after Christ um, went back to the Father involved Peter and Paul, and it was over the question of circumcision. You know that the two of them fought bitterly. Paul, Paul even boasts about it, that he, that he had to take Peter on. They're the two great leaders of the church, and they fought bitterly over this notion. Paul's great concern, this, is, this goes to this question of faith, absolutely directly to this question. Peter believed that the Gentiles coming into the church should be circumcised. circumcised. Paul said, absolutely not, absolutely not. To require that the Gentiles be circumcised as a sign of their election into the Christian faith would put them under the law. 
And if you've read um, the letter to the Romans and so many of his other letters, you know how adamant he is and how the, the pains he takes to distinguish the law and faith. He says that can't be because to require circumcision is to put them under the, under, um, the law and its, and its outward observances. And it would put them under Judaism again, which was a theocracy. It was really clear from everything that Christ did was, was to go out to all the Gentiles. That meant all nations, not just Judaism, not just the Jews by their race, all nations. That Christ came for everybody, not just the predestined, everybody. So Paul takes great pains in his letters to show that a revolution is taking place. We no longer judge ourselves by outward appearances. Now hold on to this. This is really crucial. Because you know according to the ancient law and the observances that the Jews had to practice these observ external observances as a way of showing how righteous they were. If you look back at the pagan code, you know that virtue displays itself by actions as well. And so often men measure their actions by outward appearances. Christ makes clear in his readings, and, or I mean his, in his talks, in his teachings to his disciples, Paul makes clear in his writings that the most important thing that takes place in a man's life now is inward and invisible. It's the workings of the Spirit and action of faith and hope and charity. Those are supernatural gifts from God that changes a person's life. Now, how easy is it to see those in a person? How easy is it to measure? Um, let's say you come from a gang where you've been giving your life to violence and suddenly God speaks to you and you're, you have a conversion. Is that guy going to act the same way that somebody who's been well-mannered because he's brought up in a well-mannered family and has an education? Do we actually see the workings of a spirit invisibly in a person working with that individual person's life? Now the crucial thing here is that the whole movement was to be outward to all the Gentiles of every nation. And here, here's the most emphatic point I'd like to leave everybody with. That means that Christianity, by its very nature, is supra-temporal, temporal, supra-temporal, supra-national, supra-racial. It's above national boundaries, temporal boundaries, racial boundaries. It's, it, it was those qualities that made it universal. That's what Catholicism meant. It was for all people, all the Gentiles. Is that clear? I, mean, I want to say that really emphatically because if you read Paul and what's going on, the whole pull is to bring the Jews out of an Old Testament. And, and Paul, it's just, what an amazing man. He, 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 over and over again in his letters, you know, he talks about making his own people jealous. And he's actually following God on that. He wants them to know they're losing something. And he also makes it clear, salvation will not come until the Jews return to God. That's Paul, from God. But all of, all of human history will end with that action, the Jews returning. Paul's waiting on that. And he goes to the Gentiles hoping to make his own people jealous because he wants them finally to come. But the whole thrust is to leave their, their, national, their racial religion and enter into something that's universal, i.e. Catholic. So the very nature of Catholicism is that it raises itself above a national identity, a political identity, a racial identity, 
Anglican um, was national. What it did was take the Catholic Church and contain it under a national identity. Um, the Orthodox churches in the East do that under a racial identity. Catholicism is supposed um, to, to draw people from their whatever their ethnic racial background is into something that super elevates them, that draws them all into a union with God. So somebody in America will have no difficulty knowing he's united with somebody in Turkey, Russia, Istanbul, Africa. It doesn't matter. We can't let those national racial boundaries keep us from a higher call to love one another in Christ. So, and, and you can think about the importance of scripture in this context, think about the importance of the Eucharist, okay? And the different ways in which people view these things. So all of these, all of these issues are, are brought to the surface in all of these wars, and, and <laughs> we're gonna see this when we go back to Dante, people are killing each other over them, right? The Anglicans want to impose their view on the Scots, the Presbyterians. Presbyterians want to get rid of the Anglicans. The Congregationalists and the Puritans are going to the Netherlands and then America. Um, so um, that's the history in which Milton is writing. Um, and that's the beginnings of our modern world, where we are today. Um, so one last thing, just I, I think I went over this. I, did, I, did I mention that section in Peter where Peter, or where Christ goes to his disciples and says, who do they say I am? Did, did I do that? I've already done it. Let me just repeat the, the insight I had and then we'll stop. You remember that he says, who do they say I am? And they don't answer and then he turns to Peter and says, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ looks to him and says, you didn't get that from a human, you got that from my father. I, I talked about that, right? That it's a taking of the auspices moment. Taking of the auspices, you all know what that means now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my wife has been saying for two weeks, get on, get on, get on. <laughs> Every time we go home, she's going, get on, where's Milton? <laughs> um, um, a lot, different people mark the beginnings of the church with different incidences. Some people, Catholics, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm just only loosely aware, I'm not a historian, I'm, this is not a, I'm not an expert in these things, I'm a layman speaking as a layman here. My field is literature. Um, some people mark the beginnings of the church with the Annunciation, with Mary coming to uh, Elizabeth and Christ leaping, you know, and, and um, Elizabeth recognizing and, and Christ sort of making his mark. Some people identify the beginnings of the church with the upper room, with the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the, the Spirit entering and confirming what Christ did when he said, I'll send the paraclete. Seems to me there's good reason for thinking that the church begins in this moment with Peter, um, because it's Peter's the first one to see Christ for who he is, and he ha unlike the other episodes, Christ confirms it. He says, nobody, my Father did this with you. And shortly after that, that he gives him the keys to bind and loose. That's an extraordinary power when you think of what, my answer to that question, why, why did he do that? Because he knew what the, what the church would be facing. If evil exists in the world, the, the church is gonna have to, to have to deal with really awful things 
to answer that, they would have needed a really great authority. So when he vests those keys in Peter, that's not a small moment. But it's in this moment that two things are established. On this rock, I will build my church. Peter, so two things coincide. One is Peter, the person, and the other is the indwelling of the spirit in him that makes it possible for him to see Christ. So two things happen if that's a founding moment going forward, because Christ says, on this rock I shall build my church. So one of the questions that I asked him um, and, and used Hamlet to sort of back it up with some forces, who's there? Those are the opening lines of Hamlet. When we, when we look at the beginning with, with Christ himself, because all of the Reformation thinkers saw him differently, who's there? Who is this person who calls himself the Son of God? Is he fully human, fully man, something else? Who's there? The churches struggle with that forever. Who's Peter? To all appearances, he would have looked like the same man he was 15 minutes earlier. Nobody would have seen him differently. He didn't suddenly glow. You know, it was Peter, same man. And yet, utterly changed in who he was, seeing Christ. And this is the man that's going to betray Christ. Christ knew it. Christ knew it. So we have all these extraordinary things going on in the Reformation where our faith, its nature, the nature of the church, the nature of Christ, authority, faith, all these things were at issue. And wars were fought over them and people killed each other on the basis of their beliefs. So that's where we were in the modern world, the beginning of the modern world. Okay? Now let me breathe for a second. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry. Any questions? We're gonna go we're surprise. We're gonna go to Milton. Okay. Don't go anywhere now. Does anybody it has to be brief. It's brief. Okay. It's very terse. It's always kind of bothered me the the reading you were talking about was followed by the uh, reading where it says get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just, it's kind of hard to reconcile those two. Okay, let me, you want my response to that? Yeah. I mean, let me give you a person. I don't think it's an actual contradiction. I don't think it yeah. takes out any. I don't either, yeah. Any um, credibility to what you're, what yeah. you're making. Yeah, yeah. But it's just hard. Yeah. Let me, I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you asked that. If I can just take 30, I'm going to, I want to get brief because I've been, we were supposed to get to Milton and I really want to get to him. But I think that's a wonderful question. Let me give you my personal response. I, I can't say that I'm speaking from the authority of the church, but as a, a lay person who's thought about this a lot, this is my response. Christ chose Peter to be the rock of his church. On this church, or on this rock, I will build my church. He gave him the keys. He knew Peter was going to betray him. There's no way he could have not known. In fact, he even makes it clear before the clock... The cock crows, right? Mm -hmm. He knew. Why did he do that? And why did he why did he say, get behind me, Satan? Satan. And by the way, after Peter betrays him, who's the major figure in Acts to take responsibility for all that goes on? It's Peter. He stands up in an, with an amazing this is the man who wouldn't talk before. Now he's addressing the disciples in these communities, going to people. And he's bringing Christ everywhere with this depth of conviction that we had no signs of earlier. So something happens to him. My response to that is, Christ 
knew what was going to happen to Peter. And he, 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 he made him the rock on which to build the church because he knew that Peter could never go on to be the rock without knowing himself better. And he would never become the man Christ knew he would be unless he failed and in the most miserable way. Because so long as a man thinks he's better than he is when he's called to an office like that, how well, how well can he do it? Will he have the humility, the self-knowledge? Do we know of anybody in the Bible close to Christ who betrayed him that way? No. Do, is there another man who has to come to terms with himself in self-knowledge the way Peter does? No. Before he could lead his church, before he could lead his church, he had to grow in humility and self-knowledge which meant he had this going right to Paradise Lost. He had to see Satan in himself. He had to see the worst possibilities, or he would never be able to lead. Or let me turn it around. How well did Peter know himself before his betrayal? Not at all. If if anybody had said, "Are you going to betray Christ?" What would Peter's answer have been? No. Absolutely not. What did he do? Ran. What did most of the men do? Ran. As far as I know, John was the only man. It was all the women who were at the cross. The men were off being brave. (laughs) (laughs) Running the other way. Let's go to Milton. Can we go to Milton? Okay. It might be a restful home at our house tonight when Suzanne and I get home. Do you all hear her? Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) God. Okay, Milton. Why does all this matter? What we've gone over so much. Why? Who cares? Why does all this matter? Because these were the historical circumstances out of which Milton wrote. This was the age into which he was born. That's secondary for me. That's secondary. Why does all this matter? Because it informed every single thing he did. Absolutely. Um, And we'll see this, I think, more and more as we go along. His view of scripture, his view of man, his view of marriage, his view of man's ultimate end, his view of Christ are all in this epic. And you know one of the reasons we've come together. I don't have an answer for this yet. We're entering into this together in a big darkness. Um, what are the implications of all these beliefs for this poem? When we read Paradise Lost, can we learn anything about the Protestant sensibility, you know, the, the way that it looks at the world? Paradise Lost and um, the Divine Comedy are, are the two great epics on the, on the threshold of modernity. Milton's more modern. I'm going to argue through the course that in some ways it looks back to a classical world. In some ways Milton or Dante's looking more forward, but they're there on the verge of the modern world. And they, they're important for us because they, they make us aware of these worlds that we've been talking about the last two classes, the Catholic world and a Protestant world. There's nothing that Milton did that wasn't rooted in his religious beliefs and that didn't find its way into Paradise Lost. So my question here at the outset of our work on Milton, what do we learn? I've never done this in my life. God. I mean, my, my, the great caller 
around myself for all of my life as a teacher is to try to um, be faithful to that work in front of me, to, to try to make clear what's there. This is new for me because it means not only looking at the Milton um, poem, because I want, I want to take that seriously, but when we look at it, are we, do we become aware of other things? His faith, what it reveals about his faith. What can we take away from this poem? So that's major for us. Um, you know that Milton's grandfather was Catholic, his father Anglican. He set out for um, a place in the church as an Anglican. That would have been his natural end. And that because of all these things going on, he, he, can, um, he, uh, he identified with the Presbyterian cause, and then you know he finally left that. Um, he wrote a number of tracts that are at least important to be aware of. Um, he wrote a track um, in defense of divorce. He outraged an English nation when he did that because up until that time, marriage was looked at as indissoluble. It was a Catholic country. You know that um, um, Henry left the church because the Pope wouldn't give him permission to divorce. For Milton to write that tract set, made him unpopular, except for the Calvinists, because remember, up until Calvin, Marriage was a sacrament. It, it, was, it, it, it was understood to be a way in which a man and a woman entered into a sacramental union with Christ because Christ presents himself as the bridegroom with his church. So that when, when a man and woman married, they entered into the, they had, there's no way to put this, they entered into a cross, um, believing that by learning to renounce themselves, and growing in Christ's love to put away, I mean, to, good example here, to put away all these political differences that led to so many killings, to learn to love each other that they would, they would be one with Christ eventually. He, so he wrote a track on divorce. He wrote a, um, a track defending regicide, justifying the killing of the king. Milton put, I mean, went public in defense of executing Charles. A man, a man goes public saying, it's justified to kill, execute a king. Okay. Probably the most famous track um, is Aeropagitica. It's, it's his track on, in defense of um, free speech, basically. It, it's a little bit misconstrued. He, he wasn't defending free speech. He was attacking the licensing laws at the time because people were using licensing laws to censor certain religious beliefs and Milton saw that as wrong. No, nobody, sh nobody should be prevented from expressing their own religious beliefs. He didn't feel that way about the Catholics because he felt that the Catholics were superstitious and backwards and people should be careful of them. Um, but you know that Aeropagitica's probably the major track, in it's the first major track in defense of freedom of speech and it finally wakes its, makes its way into our constitution. Um, when, he, when he finally got so disillusioned with what was going on with the um, Presbyterian Church and what happened under Cromwell, that Cromwell was becoming just as despotic in his Puritan ways as the Presbyterians before him and the Anglicans. He dissociated himself from all established religions. I'm going to speak to this next week when we get together again. Because he saw, and so many people with him saw, that any established religion by its very nature as established was evil. And I, I, when I look around at modern America, I, I, it's hard for me not to see evidence of 
that everywhere. We are so suspicious of anything established. We, most of us have some hidden, I think, assumption that if it's established, it's got hidden corruptions in it somewhere. The government, the government, the church. I, I, I don't think I'm misspeaking here. I think most of us would look at the government and say, what is it that we don't know that's going on that's bad? You know, it's, once you establish it, a corruption gets drawn in and secret things go on and um, so much of that goes back to this period. Um, so those are some important background things to keep in mind there. Now, quickly, if you take out this, very, very quickly, if you take out this timeline, I just want you to see something here. It's called the literature, yeah, the, the tradition unfolding or yeah. timeline for epic count. If you look at the, the one page, Literature's Prophecy, you'll see the, the epic tradition unfolding. It, it takes us up to the Divine Comedy for the, for the work that we've done the last couple of years. It took us up to Moby Dick and then Faulkner in, in Faulkner's Go Down Mosin. Is that clear? There's an epic tradition that begins with the Iliad and the Odyssey that gets carried with Virgil and then Dante in the Divine Comedy and Milton and I would say gets carried forward um, to Moby Dick and then Faulkner's good on Moses. But turn the page, look at the other page. I, this is, I, I just want to make this point very, very briefly. If you look at the epic tradition unfolding, and Milton knew it well. Milton knew that he wanted to write an epic, not a novel, an epic. He contemplated for years on writing an epic on, uh, in the form of a heroic romance involving knights, maybe King Arthur. But his, the whole direction of his thinking was knighthood. And then eventually he turned his mind towards the Bible and ended up writing the epic on Genesis, on the fall. But, so he was aware of this tradition. Take a look at those traditions because this is interesting. If you go back to the beginnings of the epic tradition, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and go back to the Old Testament, it's amazing to see how closely they line up with each other. For this reason, every single epic, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, has Dante, but let me stay in the ancient world for a second. Every single epic has as its theme a refounding. Every epic deals with a national disorder, a disorder of a people. Something has crept into their life um, that's produced a disordered way of living among themselves. In the Iliad, it's led to a war between the West and East, uh, between Greece and Turkey, um, and, and all sorts of other Asian nations because the Trojans gathered together people from um, all over that world. If you look back at the ancient epics, every one of those epics deals with um, a reordering. A people is trapped in a disorder. It, it's, it's become rooted in their ways, and it's, it's leading to um, um, a destruction. Something bad is happening. In the Iliad, it has to do with the way in which men view each other. And what we learn in the Iliad is that men look at other men's as means, as objects 
for gratifying their own desires. They look at um, their power to overcome another man um, as a means of enhancing their own possessions, the booty that they collect, the horses or armor, or, or the women that they can collect. Um, so it's, it's led to this war in which men are killing each other for the booty that they can get. Achilles throws that whole thing off. And what happens over the course of that story is that we see that um, one man comes to see that booty, that the integrity of a man cannot rest on external goods. This is already looking to Paul and Christ. The worth of a man cannot depend on external possessions. It's, it comes from something inside himself given by God. That's Achilles. In the ninth book he says, when all these people come to bribe him back into the war, he says, such booty is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He turns from the world, and once he does, when he re-enters the world a little bit later, nobody can defeat that man. Nobody. He's a changed person. Once, once you accept your own death, what do, you, what do you have to be afraid of? It's like somebody in AA. Once you admit your sins, what do you have to be nervous about? There's a radical transformation that takes place in that, that has to do with the, with the essential dignity of the human person. It's an extraordinary thing. The Odyssey, what's it about? Flawed senses of marriage, the union between a man and woman. Think about that. Those are the two fundamental principles of our civilization. How we look at the individual, his integrity, this, this innate indignity as from God, and marriage. Take marriages away and civilization goes to pieces. If we look at people as if they're expendable, we can kill each other and not worry. The two fundamental principles of our civilization are there in the opening in Homer's two epics. From Virgil, it goes on from there to the city. For those of you who've read it, you know that it's Rome. Rome is this universal city. It's going to overcome our racial, national differences to bring people together under a brotherhood, a common life. Whatever their racial differences doesn't matter. Whatever their national differences, there is this universal city in which men and women can come together to love each other as human beings. Whatever their race, whatever their nation. So there in the beginning are all these epics. Every one of them has to do with dealing with a disorder that involves the gods. They cannot answer this disorder without the help of the gods. Through the help of the gods, they answer this disorder, and a refounding takes place. They come to a new identity of themselves. They're renewed. Some disorder is passed. Some new thing enters the world. The epic poet saw this. What's going on in, in Genesis? A refounding. Yeah? God's calling his, um, Abraham out to found a people that will eventually lead to a Messiah who will be the refounder of another people altogether. So, at the heart of all these epics is this action in which a hero has to take on the burdens of his people to help undo them and bring into being a new, a new sense of identity for this people. Okay? Now think about Milton. What's he doing? He goes back to Genesis and the fall. Same thing. This disorder, what will come out of it, what refounding will take place. It will be a new people. We enter the world in a fall. At the end of Paradise Lost, we'll see... We, we enter the world as fallen creatures and look forward to the Savior who's going to come. Okay? 
So in writing this epic, he is absolutely one with the epic tradition as we know it. Okay? He, he situates himself there. Now, every epic that we read in the ancient world has got this extraordinary hero. Um, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas are extraordinary men. When we get to Dante, it's going to be another thing. We have to wait to get to him. But um, Paradise Lost begins with this Satan figure who seems to have all these heroic qualities. He leads his men. He seems to be noble. He wants to fight back. He seems to be going against an oppressor. Um, and um, we're presented with this seemingly noble figure, very noble figure, um, um, who has to fight against this apparent despot um, and he's heard that this new world is uh, being created and he wants to go and undo it to get back at this despotic god that he just rebelled against. Um, one last thing before we think, before we turn to the book. Two things, a couple of things. One is, this is a, 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 um, a note of encouragement. Flannery O'Connor, who's a um, recent contemporary short story writer, narrative writer in America, in a collection of essays that she wrote, which is an amazing collection. If, if you're interested in writing at all, you, you want to get this book. It's wonderful. It's called Mystery and Manners. It's a collection of essays on writing. It's, it's really down-home, written, very simple, um, wonderful wit, and so intelligent. She says in one of her essays that when we read a story, if we don't learn to identify with every character in that story, we're misreading. And I've been, you know, the, those of you who've been around here, I've been pushing that forever. When we did Othello, I remember saying to everybody, if we don't learn to identify with Iago, we're not reading. Most of us want to identify with the good guys. You know? Which means we don't look at the bad guys, and I'm going to say, we don't look at the bad side of ourselves. We just don't, we're not, we're not being honest. If we're not learning to see the bad side of ourselves, how can we overcome them? Literature is prophetic in one sense. It shows us things we don't want to see. There's a value in it. So one of the important things that literature gives us is a truthfulness about quality sometimes we'd rather not see. So that, if she's right, I believe she is, that's going to take some special courage here. It's going to take some real grit because the main character of this book is Satan. So one of the challenge questions I'm going to put out here at the outset is, <laughs> get nervous just saying this, can we look at him and find qualities of him in ourselves? If we don't, I'm not sure that we're reading well. I won't be surprised if nobody comes back next week. <laughs> but I'm saying that earnestly. I mean, Milton's a very, you know, he's a, he's a gifted, gifted, brilliant writer, and he's He's doing something no epic poet had done before. He's actually taking us back to the fall. That's the first. Second, up until <clears throat> Milton, um, Dante's an exception. Da Dante takes himself as the epic hero, so he's telling a story about himself. He's not explicitly going to the Bible. So even if we include Dante in this group, no epic writer, no epic poet before Milton was in a position, except Dante, in a position to take the scripture and use scripture as the basis of his story. Now stop and think about that because that's more than daring. 
Homer didn't know Christ. Virgil didn't know Christ. Dante did, but he doesn't bring Scripture in directly anywhere. Milton's basing his story on Scripture. So he's taking a divine revelation and recasting it from his reading of it to give his own reading of it, the epic. So in its, in its impulses, in its basic impulses, its instincts, it's absolutely Christian. It comes out of the Reformation when everybody's questioning Scripture and what it means, and he's writing a story out of it. So this is the only epic in which an epic writer has whatever you're going to call it, chutzpah, or what's the word, or um, to actually take a script, a part that's understood to be a divine revelation, and recasting it from his own vision of it. That's a very, very daring thing to do, okay? Because it goes to the heart of our understanding of everything in our faith, absolutely everything. The fall, Christ, our, our view of man, our view of marriage, the sexual relationship between man and woman, Adam and Eve, as we will look at them. So um, we have to keep that in mind. And just along those same lines, I think it's important to, think, to, to give this some thought. Since Milton wrote Paradise Lost, most people read Genesis through him. Lots of people don't give Genesis a thought, but intellectuals who think about this stuff do. And I think a lot of people understand Genesis through Milton's eyes. That's not a small thing. Let me just give you a, a couple of, some critics, going back to Milton's own time, said, how can he do this? Because he's writing about something of which we have no knowledge. We weren't there, right? We weren't there. But he's putting us there. So he's going back to what some people might call an idealized world, we, and he's rendering it. So it's daring in lots of amazing ways. And it's important for us never to lose sight of the fact that he's, the basis of his epic poem is a work from scripture, a divine revelation. Okay. We should really be aware of his presumption then, shouldn't we? As we're reading, should be aware that he aware that we should uh, watch out that he might be presuming yeah yes I don't want to use that language I don't want to say beware but, but I will say be be aware I mean read alertly I don't want, I don't want to tilt this anyway I don't want to I don't want to make any I don't want to approach this with anything negative I'm trying to be as neutral as I can this is Milton using scripture, um, be aware as you read it. I don't want to put anybody on guard because I don't want to prejudice one way. Right now I'd like to enter this poem. But it seems to me it's impossible all the way along to be asked, not to ask questions about what's going on, to see what the implications are. Um, okay. The first book begins in medius race. That's the epic, that's the epic convention. In medius race, in the midst of things. In the midst of things. Those of you who've done the epic tradition with me know. It doesn't mean arithmetic middle. In the midst of things means that you're in the middle of a muddle. Something has just happened. And the best way to explain it, I think, is, if, and I'm sure most of us have had these experiences, if not all of us. We're in our families thinking everything's going along just fine. And then suddenly one night there's a knock on the door and the cops say they've got our son or daughter. 
and um, he was drinking or involved with drugs or whatever happened or Aunt May ran off with uh, um, somebody and left her husband or whatever it is, whatever it is, um, the peace that we thought we were settled in gets shattered, absolutely shattered. And it's an important moment for, this is Oedipus, I mean this is our literature going back to the beginnings, because we think we see things the way they are and suddenly something um, violates our life, it cuts into it, and we realize that things weren't the way we saw them. In the midst of things at that moment, we suddenly have to go back and, and review our life and find out where we were implicated, where we went wrong, what happened, why didn't we see it, how we're involved in it. So in the midst of things means that disorder that I was talking about a minute ago in all the epics that people are involved in, that disorder gets exposed, people get hurt and wounded, and the question becomes, can they work out of it? What will, what will it take to get out of it? Every epic has been about that. In medius race means in the midst of something. Something's happened and it forces us to, to look at things more truthfully, to have the courage to deal with things that we didn't before. That's at the heart of all of it. So, um, now, um, opening question. Because I'm going to, we're going to. I want to just read some passages to get us going. You know that in the first book, Satan comes to consciousness, and we have to ask, who is he? Um, what is he? And the second book um, follows from what happens in the first. Satan um, gathers the the fallen angels together. They go in and build pandemonium to have a council. The second book opens with that council. In that council, the demons have to decide what they're going to do. Satan is on a throne overseeing the devils and the three devils give their view on what they should do. Moloch says, um, open war or annihilation. That's his position. Fight back, even if we're annihilated. That's his position. Belial responds and says, that's stupid. We're going to be defeated anyway. We should accommodate. And with the idea that maybe one day God will relent. Um, Mammon says that's not going to happen. Um, I can't. What was his? Um, yeah, he says we can't do either. They're stupid. Do we have to find our good in ourselves? So he's avoiding what he thinks are stupid positions on either side of it. And then Beelzebub says you're all wrong. Um, that none of those options are realistic at all that the only thing we can do is possibly undermine what God is attempting to do. And there was some rumor that he was going to create this new world, and, sa and Satan says, who's going to go? And um, nobody stands up, and he offers to go himself. So in every way, he seems to be an epic hero. He's doing things that the other characters aren't. Okay? Those are the opening chapters. Um, what we learn, too, interestingly, is when Beelzebub speaks up, it says, that he was only speaking for a position that Satan already asked him to. So the whole thing is a setup. That um, Satan and Beelzebub know exactly what's going to happen. Um, they could have predicted what the different positions were um, that were offered, um, and they knew that they would all be overturned. Satan would overturn them, and, and he, he sets himself up like he's going to be the epic hero and, and go off and do this amazing task. So that in every way, 
he seems to be doing what an epic hero does. Now, before I read, last thing, give this some thought. Um, where's it going? Every epic hero in the epic tradition is good. And those of you who have read the epics know that the gods are good, basically good. They do foolish things like commit adultery and every, you know, and people criticize them for that and they quarrel and but if you look at Athena, for example, or Zeus in those in those novels, you know or epics, you know that Athena is a, a, the goddess of wisdom and everything she does is in keeping with the wisdom. Zeus in lots of ways too. Um, I'll go back into this later, but what's happening in the beginning of this book is that Milton is showing us is um, that all those ancient gods are evil. They're the sources of demons in the world, most of them associated with the, the, the gods that the Israelites worshipped. They're evil. So in place of a good hero and good gods, we've got evil creatures who are the sources of those ancient gods, Zeus, Athena, Hephaestus, all the rest, and Satan. So everything that was good is now corrupted. Is that clear? Later Milton's going to say after the fall takes place, he says, all depraved, all corrupt. And here at the opening what we get, um, we'll see in a second, is the epic hero is Satan and um, all the demons are the sources of the, the, the gods that the Israelites and the surrounding peoples worshipped when they turned away from God. Baal, Moloch, all the others. Um, so that in the very opening pages, Milton is taking that whole epic tradition and turning it on its head. Okay? It's important to see that. Okay? Okay, I'd like to um, read some passages so we can get into the book. Any questions? Just briefly, brief questions? Can you turn to the book one? He's announcing the subject in the first lines, and notice the pun on fruit, right? Fruit has two meanings, consequence means consequence, the fruit of something, it also um, in a veiled way refers to the apple. So already he's alerting us that there can be multiple levels of meaning to what's about to happen. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe, with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, seeing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who has taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heaven and earth rose out of chaos, or of Zion hill delight thee more and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure instruct me, for thou knowest thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like sat us brooding on the vast abyss. 
couple of things. Every epic, ancient epic, opened with the poet invoking a muse. It was the goddess Calliope. She was the goddess of song, epic song. Milton's invoking the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, he's, he's claiming a prophetic quality to the story he's about to tell. He's going to tell about the fall, and he's invoking the Holy Spirit to be the means by which he tells the story. Um, it's the same one who, who inspired who? Moses, who gave, whom God gave the Ten Commandments to. So um, he's linking himself with Moses and invoking the Holy Spirit to tell the story. And he's going to tell a story that has to do with something far greater than any story that any poet has ever attempted before. Okay? And then he says, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, and chiefly that was spirit that does prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure. Any comment on that? Keep in mind, this is the an interesting... Peter Paul thing. Sorry? Even the Peter Paul, well, that it's, Paul stressed the inward right. transformation, right. super right. Right. ethical, or right. super Yeah, and Milton's aware of that. Keep in mind this when you, I mean, I look at this passage and it catches me for a second. Because for Milton, remember, established religion was not good. Yeah, A temple would not have been, it would have been far more important for him that the inner man do what's right not a temple. So he dissociated himself from that temple life by making whatever happens um, between him and the spirit inside more important. What were Christ's comments about the temple? He was going to tear it down. (laughs) And left, wait, hold on, hold on. Yeah, he was going to tear it down, he was going to raise it up in three days. Right. And they said that's another reason to Yeah, because yeah, because it's like he's claiming to be gone. Um, Tear the temple down. He's going to raise it again in three days. And remember that if you think about the temple, I don't I don't want to go on in this, but just you know keep be I mean Jones' words be aware here. Um, He said he was going to tear the temple down and rebuild it. That is, give it a completely new cast. The, the The whole structure of religion as it existed in the Jews, was going to be radically transformed. Now, when you think about the temple that Christ was going to rebuild, because you, you know from Paul's letter that he keeps talking about Christ as the sacrificial lamb himself, and you put that together with his words, unless you eat of my body and drink my blood, is it possible to, re- to worship God any longer without a temple, with him as the priest and the sacrifice? victim at the same time. Milton is saying, and chiefly thou, spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me for thou knowest. So there, already at the outset, it is just this hint of something to be aware of, just in the way that Milton looks at things. 
Um, he does what the epic poets do. He asks, what was the cause of this downfall? And he, uh, um, he gives the answer to that question that it was Satan who rebelled against God um, and um, was defeated by God in the battle in heaven. Go to about line 50. So the narrator, the epic poet Milton, is describing the causes of this war, what the epic is about. It's going to be about the fall of man, the loss of Eden, and who caused it, Satan. And then it shifts from this narrative, objective narrative point of view about line 55 to Satan's consciousness. We move right into Satan's mind about line 55. But his doom reserved him to Moorath, for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witness Hugh's affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. Okay, you all catch the shift? We're now in the poem in Satan's consciousness and we're off into the action. Um, Satan looks around, he sees bees above, the two look at each other um, and are amazed to see what they've lost. Um, about line 105, well actually a little bit around line 100. Yet not for those, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict, do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster. He has no intent to do anything differently than he did in the... He's committed to defying God. Do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster, that fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend and to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that dirts dislike his reign, and me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne. What though the field be lost, all is not lost, the unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield, and what is else not to be overcome. So he's committed himself to carry on this battle, um, the two commiserate with each other. Um, the other demons begin to come out of the lake, and um, then we have um, this moment. Um, turn, turn to about line two forty-five. Um, there's a moment when Satan looks out at, at the, what to call it, the devastation, the effects of the, the, their defeat at the hands of God. And for a moment, he looks out and uh, Milton describes him as um, dropping tears, dropping tears. And then about line 245, we have this. Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, forth has made supreme above his equals. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest bell, receive thy hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time, 
The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven, what matter where if I still be the same and what I should be all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. It's only by God's force, according to Satan, that he's greater than Satan himself. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, now, um, going over, just I want to just point this out. I want to come back to this section, but just to quickly cover, I mean, gloss the first book if we can. Turn to 380. As the devils emerge, Milton asks for help from the muse to name them. This is the, for those of you who've read the epic tradition, you know, this is what's called the, the like the catalog of the ships. It's, a, it's, a, it's an epic um, convention. In Homer, we had the catalog of the ships. In, in Virgil, we had the same thing. There's a catalog where you, you give this sort of encyclopedic glimpse of everything, and, and Milton's doing it here with the, with demons. So he identifies each one of the demons and we learn that each one of these demons was actually the prototype of one of the gods that Israel's enemies worshipped and that at times Israel itself worshipped. Okay? There's 12 of them and he gives them in groups of nine. Okay? That's clear. Because sometimes he'll give multiple demons in one description. So there's actually 12, but he presents them in the groups of nine. Why? Is that clear? No. Huh? You mean 12 groups of nine? Sorry? 12 groups of nine? No, there's 12 demons. He names 12. Uh-huh. Um, groups of nine. Here, take a look at 390. First Moloch, 390, right? down three, four or five, Nix, Chemos, um, uh, three and four together on 420 of Balaam and Ashtar, right? In some of them, um, he, will, he will include groups so that we get three named at once. So he names 12, but there are actually nine oh, I see. namings, okay? No significance to that number, those numbers? Sorry? Yeah, and the twelve disciples. I mean, if this is going to be, if this is going to be, if evil is the opposite of good, and the beginnings of this reign in in Israel were the twelve tribes and then the twelve disciples, then it would be fitting that the opposite would be take the same form, except the opposite in nature. So I don't think it's an accident. There's twelve of them, and they're grouped in nine, which I think is a play on the Trinity that implicit in this is a Trinitarian character. We're going to see that in a number of places with um, Satan. Um, the demons in the, at the end of the first book will go... Oh, oh here, another. This is really interesting. Take, take a look at... Um, on line 470, or I'm sorry, 740. When he describes the building of Pandemonium, he says that the architect of the building was Mulciber, line 740. 
nor was his name unheard or unadorned in ancient Greek and in a Sonian land. Men called him Mulciber. How he fell from heaven, a fabled throne by angry Jove, sheer o'er the crystal battlements from morn to noon he fell and was on. Mulciber is Hephaestus. Those of you who did the Iliad and the Odyssey will know. Um, remember, Hephaestus was the crippled god. This is extraordinary to me. This is extraordinary. Hephaestus was the crippled god. He was thrown out of heaven and was lame by that fall. He was the one who built things. And his role in the Iliad was significant because he's the one who built Achilles' shield, who fashioned that shield. And if you know the Iliad, you know that once Achilles has that shield, nobody can defeat him. It has a divine spirit, presence, authority in it. So Hephaestus, who is the god in the Iliad and the Odyssey, is a demon. So when we, re so, I mean, think about how much rewriting is going on here. Is that clear? When, if any of you have read the Iliad, you know you read these people and you sort of like them. I mean, Hephaestus is, I've always enjoyed him. Now we're seeing that, as a matter of fact, he wasn't as nice as we thought. In fact, he was pure evil. So Milton is taking this tradition and rewriting it, completely changing it. Now I want to stop for a minute. I, I hope to, that we can get to two just at the beginning because I want to look at this council. But before we do, um, I've got a couple of questions. In the opening lines, when we first hear Mil or Satan speak, he describes himself as having lost heaven in terms of um, injured merit, as if he didn't deserve what happened. I think most of us know that when we get really upset about something, it's out of a spirit of injured merit. Yeah, this is line 100. That fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend. He's responding to this whole thing with a sense of injured merit as if he didn't deserve it. Okay? I think most of us know what that means because so often we get angry when we feel retreated in a way we don't deserve. We, we deserve better. So we enter into these things with a sense of injured merit. That's, that's where Satan is. Um, he describes himself then, he, he cries, he tears, tears fall from his eyes when he looks out of the devastation. Um, and is it this thing, hold on. Doc, is that where he, where he is it in the second? Sorry. Yeah, turn to 640. I'm sorry, 640? Line 640, book one. He's saying, he's describing the revolt and saying, there's no way they could have known in advance how great this God was. He's trying to do all he can to help gather his legions together. Um, for who can yet believe, though after loss, that all these puissant legions, whose exile hath emptied heaven, shall fail to reascend self-raised and repossess their native seat? For me be witness, all the host of heaven, if counsels different or dangers shunned by me, have lost our hopes, 
But he who reigns monarch in heaven till then as one secure sat on his throne, upheld by old repute, consent or custom. That's the nature of God's claim on his throne is custom. It's not being or by his own nature. It's like it was conferred on him or something that existed before him. Upheld by old repute, consent or custom, and his regal state put forth at full, but still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. Somebody paraphrase that line. Oh, it was God's fault. Okay. He cries. He says injured merit. Does God does God punish merit? No. He doesn't. But Satan's response is that he's entering in this with a sense of injured merit as if God treated him in a way that he didn't deserve. Um, so injured merit, um, which tempted our attempt, he's blaming God. He cries, um, tears fall from him when he looks out at, at the devastation. Um, characterize Satan in this opening book. Whining. <laughs> Beth, square that with his language. How do you put that in the context of his language? I don't know. Anybody? <laughs> he's, he's surprised he was defeated and he's rationalizing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost. In the first two books, it's almost like building is, is trying to set us up to identify with Satan. That a lot of his weaknesses are the weaknesses that we have. And we're Name some, can you? Well, well, I mean, there's there's one right there. You know, rationalization. You know, it could be my fault. It was God's fault because he didn't let me know how powerful he was. Right. So when I attacked him, he, he, he smacked his <laughs> right. You know, right. right. So, I mean, there's one. I mean, yeah. and, and it's... Well, and you know, for him, it's it's better to be to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I mean, he's basically saying, you know, I've got free will, and I I want to live it, and or I whatever I want, and I don't want you telling me, right? You know what I should be doing, and I don't want you telling me that that the son is going to be number two. You know, I should be number two. Okay, good. Anybody else? What does that say about Satan? What you're I describing? I think he's worried about number being number two. He doesn't want to be number two either. Yeah. Being co-equal. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was my question? I just. <coughs> We're supposed to be what characterized. What does this say about Satan? Huh? What does this say about Satan? Yeah, I mean, what are we learning about him? Just, just in the the. He seems justified. Like, I'm justified. Right. I... Yeah. Is he believable? Well, he's believable. <laughs> <laughs> Say again? If you believe what he believes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me put it this way. I mean, describe Satan in relationship to the, the way he uses language to describe himself and what we're talking about now. I don't know if that was clear. He has human qualities. Huh? He has human qualities. Human? Uh -huh. Which? To name them. Well, he's... He, yeah. Fred named one. Um, 
Yeah. Pride, yeah. Envy. So, yeah. Envy. envy. Say where the envy is. He thinks he's unequal to God. Yeah. Yeah. So he's envious that he has the supreme power and yeah. wants what he gets. So I'll have something else. Mm-hmm. Is there no discrepancy between the language that he uses to describe himself and what in fact we're seeing? I think I'm, I'm asking how well does he use language to make himself seem to be something that he's not? Because all the men, I mean even here in the council, you know, that he's, it's, it's a trumped up affair. He's going to use, um, everybody's going to speak their mind on it, but it's a settled thing. Everything he said is in, rhetorically so powerful. He's so capable of using words that sound good. But when you look at those words and match them up with what they, what they don't openly reveal, it seems that we become aware of a discrepancy, that he's not what he seems to be. He's a facade. Hmm? He's a facade. There's always a front. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. his language presents, so he uses language to present himself a certain way, while all the while, when we listen to him, we become aware that there's something not quite right. Um, more and more will happen that will, that will make clear what's not quite right, but let me go to this question, because it's a really troubling one for me, and I'd, um, I'd like to go to the second book just to get us going here, because um, it's been a while to get here. When Satan cries, um, he does these human things. He cries, he rationalizes. I mean, um, he's got pride um, and envy. When he, cr- this, this is, I mean, this is a touchy question because I'm going to Milton now, not Satan, because Milton's the writer. He's presenting Satan as dropping tears. When you guys read that, um, did you have any questions about it? Was, did you just accept it? Is there anything troubling about that? Do you believe that a fallen angel could cry? I'm asking this pretty seriously. It's a, it's a serious thing for me. This goes to Milton's presentation, not Satan, because we're, we're supposed to take as real. Satan does this. He's, he, he sheds tears when he looks out at it. And he says, Phil, where, and he has that, that touching scene where he's... Where he, says farewell to everything on, on 250. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, when it brings a mind not to be changed. You know, this is, the, this is where he says, I'm free, I'm not better to reign in hell. But he looks out at that field and says, farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. And there's a moment where he sheds tears. I think there's a fluctuation between a real sense of loss. I mean, I notice why he's lost, but I think he also realizes that he's never going to get it back. So then he starts rationalizing and says, "Okay, well, where do I go from here?" I mean, let's face it: in the, in the midst of things, all these angels have been thoroughly and completely defeated, laying on a sea of fire that doesn't give out light, and they're going to still be there if God hadn't let the chains loose. Yeah, which is another story in itself, but. So, I mean, he, he, he's probably, for, for a moment there, he realizes, I am totally and utterly defeated, and I have lost something magnificent, but then in his pride and envy and, and, and capable of rationalization, he begins to, okay, where am I going to go from here? Well, we can just ask 
because you can't get to the anger and the envy and everything without the first and, and we all go through that. that. Just the tears. Right? I mean, you, you, yeah, have, you suffer up. a tremendous defeat, but yeah. then you say, okay, well, i got to get up on my feet and i got to get over this. Yeah. Thing. Okay. You move on or try to. Yeah. I want to, can you wait a second? Um, let me take there, because you said we all do that. In, in book three, when, when God meets in his council, he's going to describe the, the situation I described to you guys last week um, when he says, he says the, um, uh, sorry, hold on a minute. When God says, the humans fell by their own choice, um, they can be saved. No, humans are tricked. Tricked, tricked. tricked, yes. Yeah, sorry. Did I say that? Here, on uh, line, book three, line 130. Book three, line about 130, 125. Else much change their nature. Wait, wait, let me go back. Sorry. So without lead impulse or shadow of fate or aught by me immutably foreseen, they trespass author to themselves in all both what they judge and what they choose. For so I form them free and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. Else must change their nature. Can they change their nature? No, they can't. And revoke the high decree unchangeable. Eternal which ordain their freedom. They themselves ordain their fall the first sort by their own suggestion fell, <clears throat> self-tempted, self-depraved, man falls deceived by the other first. Man therefore shall find grace, the other none. In mercy and justice both, though heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel, but mercy first and last shall be shall brightest shine. He's saying, the angels chose to, to well, they're gone. Humans didn't, so there's a mercy that can be shown them. You said, that's what we do. The question that I'm asking, really the question that I'm going to is, has, has Milton humanized Satan? Because we see him crying, we see him looking back, regretting, I mean, I can't remember um, Fred your words, but regretting, looking, you know, with a sense of loss, or the question that I'm really asking, and I, I don't know how to ask this, because we're dealing with an angelic order, it's so beyond us, but I'm, the question that I'm asking, if you imagine an angel who's fallen, who's turned away from good completely, absolutely, after that moment, can there be anything good in that angel's? Can there be any sense of division? Because if, if there is a sense of division and then he's regretting something, there's something in him that still wants it, then it would be an awful God that wouldn't work with that. What, what Milton's showing us is... Um, because it, well, here, let me go back. I'm assuming if there's some good in a creature that God made, even if he's turned evil, but there's some good in him, God has something to work with. The question I'm asking is, what the, the position that I'm, what Mill's presenting us is angels who have fallen, who've made it clear their will is decidedly in one dimensional. They, they're going to they're continue in their revolt. But in some of these Descriptions, Milton's showing us a, a picture, giving us a picture of Satan, which is raising certain questions, I think. So, my question is, is he humanized? Go ahead. Oh, no. I was thinking, no. I mean, God said Satan was nothing redeemable. 
So you're saying maybe Milton is saying there might be some redeemable quality? I'm asking, I'm asking a question that has to do with Milton's treatment of treatment. Satan, the way yes. he presents him. In a number of these scenes, we see him presenting Satan in ways that remind us of our human nature. One of them is weeping tears. Is it possible to imagine a demon who has turned completely against God crying? Just for, I mean, take that one in, along with all the other things, you know, that he's showing you. Yeah, he's crying for his loss. He's crying over him. He's not crying over... Yeah. He hurt God. He's not he crying because he nice. did something. He's crying because he misses paradise. Can a, the question that I'm asking, can a demon do that? I mean, I was, it goes to what kind of tears are they crying? Um, we think of like a kid that if he's forced by his parents, it's like you're going to sit here and you're going to do this or whatever. And the kid just starts crying because his will is so strong. From where does the motivation just make the statement that it's better to reign in heaven than, I mean in hell than in, to, in heaven or whatever. From where does that statement and that complete, just adamous, adamant commitment to stress his inner will, where does that come from? And I think those are the tears we see. It's not like, oh, woe is me, I kind of messed up, gosh, what a disaster, this is what I get now or just the tragedy of it, where he's even longing like what could have been. But I think it's more like the kid that's sitting there and the kid the whole time he's gritting his teeth and he's saying, and tears are coming down and you know if he was the bigger one in the room, things would be different. And it's almost like a, it's like a re, I see it as almost like a re-emphasizing of the will when he sheds those tears. Yeah, that's the question. I, I would disagree. Only because the only time you really understand the depth of your loss is when you look at it truthfully. Yeah, he's not and if you're BSing yourself, Good. you don't understand the truth of your loss. And I think that they, they the, all the devils, they understand the depth of their loss. Now, Wait, they're, they're, they're not sorry. Do they understand anything truthfully? From what we're seeing, they were created as angels, and Satan is the greatest of angels. I know, they but they're fallen. Here, let me go. Wait, wait, I'll give it to you in a second. I, the, the, what I'm asking everybody to do here is, because the, the examples, yours, a number of them here, keep going back to us as human beings. Let me make a, an assertion here, okay? Unless you're a Calvinist who believes that some people are predestined to damnation, so they're damned from the beginning, my assumption is, is that all of us were created good, and we're all, we all live, as human beings, we all live with states of division, all of us. We carry sins in us, we act on them, we regret. Our wills are divided. Our wills are divided. So long as they are, there can be moments of weakness where we actually do something sinful, or, con or um, um, what's when you, um, incontinence, when you're too weak to restrain yourself, you whine or, you know, whatever you do, blame or, you just do it out of weakness, not out of malice, but this is all going to come clear in Dante. But, but all of those are signs of a divided will, that there's something in us fallen. We all live with, we all live with them. I know that as a human being. Unless you're a Calvinist that believes some people are damned. My question is, here's an angel that has completely turned, completely. We're not talking about human beings. We're talking about light, intellect, that's lost. I mean, I think Mark's getting close to it when he said, 
Or, or let me go back to my question. How well do these angels know anything? When you look at the Olympic Games that they perform, they all make these claims about philosophy, and all they show is how ignorant they are. There's not a statement that they make that's not ironic. They claim to have all this, this knowledge. Satan does. And what we see over and over again is that they don't know anything at all. There's no way they can use their there's no way they can use their index without being false. So we're not talking about human beings, we're talking about angels. And my question is, has has Milton humanized them by giving them these qualities? And if I'm right, I mean you can disagree. What are the implications of this for the way that we look at evil? But remember this is fiction though. Sorry? This is not theology, this is fiction. I know. So so I know, but there are implications to no, fiction. I found myself thinking theologically about angels and devils and things when I was like, wait a minute, stop, don't do that because this is not doctrine, this is fiction. So, but it's a fiction based on a real metaphysics that Milton holds. You can't say, all, you might as well toss Shakespeare off or Dante or anybody and say it's just fiction. My claim is, it has been from the beginning, the readings that we're doing have a prophetic element. They're showing us things that are important for us to see, or I wouldn't even be here. And the question that I'm raising here is a serious one because this is an epic hero. He's going to be the major figure for the first five books. This is his initial treatment, and I'm trying to raise questions about how we look at demons. If, you, if those of you who did Othello, if you remember, when Satan comes to Eden, he's going to look on Eden with wonder. Those of you who read Othello, I'm sorry here. Imagine, uh, imagine Iago, who's the most demonic human being that I know in all the literature. He's absolutely evil. Imagine Iago, an evil man, evil, coming to a beautiful thing. Would he respond to that thing in wonder? Or would he look at it as something to destroy? If you're ready, Othello, you know what's going to happen. My question here is, this is, a, this is a demon, this is an angel. He's presented as heroic. Milton shows that everything that he says belies him. That, he's that he doesn't see as clearly as he thinks he does. He, ra he gives all these reasons. So he doesn't see anything well, and yet we're being asked to believe that he weeps. And I, I'm questioning, I'm, I'm raising a question when we look at this. Um, what do we do? Because in so many ways he seems human. Here's where this is going. The great romantic set of Satan, I mean of Milton, he was of the devil's party. And, he, and they say that because he, he seems as if there's some attraction to Satan here. I don't want to go that far. But I want to raise the question. This is his treatment of Satan. I'm convinced by most of it, because it seems to me it's very real, that Satan doesn't know himself. In fact, we know in the second book when he meets sin and death, when he takes that journey, those are his offspring, and he doesn't even know. He doesn't know his own daughter. He doesn't know that um, he conceived her. One of the things we learned in that scene is he does not know himself at all. And yet he makes all these statements in his opening chapter, and he seems to be very heroic. So I'm raising questions about what Milton is doing with Satan and how we read. How well does Satan read? It's been one of my fundamental questions. Those of you, how well does he see the world? Is, is, does, he, does he see in truth? Or is there something, as a fallen demon, is there something wrong with his intellect and his will? Let me, let me, it's got to be brief because we, yeah, go ahead. Does that happen? Does, is the fall, I guess I could discern it myself, but 
is it happening progressively to the first two books, or is there a the fall's happened? Well, I mean, the fall of the angels. Should we assume that Milton wants us to look at like a exact point in time where Satan is completely dark? That's a really good question. It's a really good. The fall. The angels have fallen, or they wouldn't be in the hell lake. They they are they are separated from God. In they have put themselves there by their by their wills and their intellects. And now what we're watching is a group of angels meeting to plot to bring down man, Adam and Eve. But but this is the initial picture. You, you had a question, and I don't. Well, I was going to say though, to me, Satan is always about deception. So you know, for him to have tears, he's just another deception. But he's not. I mean, we don't. He's not deceiving anybody. I don't know that anybody's watching. But the other word that I would add to that, he's not only. I mean, I'm really glad for that. He's, Deception. The other word to add to that is he's the great manipulator. He, he wants to make everything conform to him, have to have his way everywhere. Sorry? We have sympathy for him. We do? He's making the reader sympathize. <laughs> That's one of my questions. When we see a, a creature cry and lament all these things, is Milton presenting in this way? Why is he doing it this way? Yeah, it's a big question. Yeah, serious question. Big question. Remember, as we go forward, this is an epic hero. This is an epic hero. He's going to take on this epic quest. It's all evil. It's going to lead to the fall of man. And he's he he he's doing it knowing that we're aware of this tradition, even if we're not. You know that there's this epic hero. So why is he doing this? Why is he presented this way? You know, is it is he setting us up for something? Or is he and he's also raising questions about how we read. Do we read really well? Are we taken in? No, that's not it. No? <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're here. <laughs> to be taken in? Can anybody volunteer for next... Anybody, can anybody bring some food next week so we have something? Would you? Great, thank you. You guys have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Be be careful how to put be careful be careful in reading in readings this week. Oh, you're welcome here. I'm glad I'm glad you had it. I'm gonna bring my